Hey, everybody, back with another bald movie. This time, we're considering the 1999 American psychological thriller, The Talented Mr. Ripley. This is written and directed by Anthony Mangella, uh, who also directed and got a lot of acclaim for The English Patient, uh, but whose career was tragically cut short um, by a uh, hemorrhage after uh, throat surgery in his early 50s. Uh, it's based on a 1955 Patricia Highsmith novel of the same name, which I did not know this, Jim, but it's actually a series of five books uh, around the, the, the talented Mr. Ripley. It's like a dark version of the Born the Born series. Uh, sure. Yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> which is pretty dark on, by its own right. It stars uh, Matt Damon as Tom Ripley, uh, Jude Law as Dickie Greenleaf, Gwyneth Paltrow, my water personal acting Waterloo as Marge Sherwood. Kate Blanchett as Meredith Luge. Is it Luge? Luge? Logue? I think Logue. is how she said it. Yeah. They're, they're, they're the t- of the textile Logues. Right. And uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman in full Mega Chad mode as Freddie Miles. <laughs> you don't get to see that gear from the Hoff yeah. Monster very often. I kind of don't like it. Like, it's not really? a gear that I really appreciate in Hoffman's uh, gearbox. Yeah. I like yeah. m- I like most of his other gears better, although I will say uh-huh. he's not bad. He's not bad. Uh, this film was nominated for five Academy Award films, including Best Adapted Screenplay and Best Supporting Actor for Jude Law. Did not win I- any of those things, um, but made a lot of money. And 20 years later is uh, still a really well-regarded psychological thriller. Um, this is about, I think, the third time I've seen it, probably not within the last 10 years. Uh, but I quite enjoyed my rewatch of The Talented Mr. Ripley. Jim, what did you think of this movie? Uh, I've never seen it before. It's my first time watching it, and I was surprised by it. Uh, I really, really enjoyed it. But it was surprising because I think this is a weird name for this movie. It's... I, I For some reason, I go into this thinking, like, I'm about to watch the... What is it? The... The pianist, the, the what's that? Mm. Uh, Adrian Brody. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I keep thinking, like mm, I'm just gonna see, you know, these high society people doing high society things, and then I get into this mm-hmm. murder mystery, and I'm like, or this or this psycho thriller. I don't know what to call this thing. It's very strange, very strange. But man, I loved it. It is a very strange film, and I think a lot of that comes from just the awkwardness of Tom on a wing and a prayer trying to stay one step ahead of these high society people and stay, you know, embedded within their society Um, Mm -hmm. because there is like it's he's not like socially He's socially awkward, but not hopeless. Sure. And a lot of like the the like I, I found myself cringing a lot because he is trying and mostly succeeding, but a lot of times frequently failing to fit in. And he's hyper aware of all those things and trying to correct like in mid sentence sometimes. Yeah. And it gives like this like really interesting kind of halting alien quality to Matt Damon's performance, which I thought you know like what man what do you I think we should start talking about, uh, well, I guess what we should do before we start talking about anything is give a synopsis of the film uh, and then we can get spoilery because if you haven't seen, if you're like Jim, you haven't seen this, I would encourage you to stop if you're interested at all in uh, watching a very young, very talented cast uh, set in gorgeous, gorgeous Mediterranean settings um, and have it be like a pretty slick, slick thriller. Um, you you want to stop now because you know as thrillers go, if you load a plot, then there goes half the suspense. So yeah. uh, this is a film about a young piano player named Tom Ripley, 
who is kind of like making his way, doing small odd jobs, playing a piano party here, uh, working a bathroom attendant there. Uh, but he's mistaken for a Princeton grad by a wealthy shipbuilding family and is soon sent to Italy to retrieve their playboy son so that he can assume the role of heir to their family's dynasty. Arriving in Italy, he quickly finds his man, but soon becomes enamored with his lavish, carefree lifestyle and does whatever he can to fit into this society and maintain his position at all costs, even his own identity. Um, this is a really fun and impressive cast, and I kind of wanted to start there. Uh, yeah, Matt Damon, Gwyneth Paltrow, and Kate Blanchett, all within a few years of recent Academy Award wins um, for very high profile, uh, you know, much discussed, you know, Goodwill Hunting, Elizabeth, Shakespeare in Love. Uh, you got Jude Law at just the start of his rise to stardom. Uh, you got, like I said, Philip Seymour Hoffman playing this kind of like super wealthy Chad uh, character, which I I really liked Philip Seymour. It's, it's funny to hear you say that you didn't like him because this is like the like. I mean, he's a little bit of a meathead and twister, but he's a stupid one. And this, yeah. he's like a very smart, well-educated, urbane meathead. Mm-hmm. But when he pops, he drives to Rome and he pops out of that like red, you know, roadster and proclaims, don't you want to fuck every woman you see just once as I, I don't know. There's something to that. Something <laughs> to that. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's not that I thought uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman was bad in this movie. I think he's excellent. But that character. Ugh. Tommy, how's the peeping? No, nah. how's the peeping, Tommy? <laughs> it's okay. The whole vibe I get, uh, and uh-huh. I think this, you know, is obviously intentional. Um, this this rich upper class sort of, you know, looking down their noses at the underclass and playing with them as they would play as a child would play with, uh, you know, a toy train or whatever. Watching it, seeing how simple and stupid it is and mm-hmm. and reveling in how just reveling in the joy they get from not being part of that class is like really offensive and off-putting to me um mm-hmm. and you know philip seymour hoffman but to a larger degree uh jude law's character dicky in this movie does that yeah, I mean, Jude Law goes a long way to making this movie work because Dickie is not ever pointed, painted out to be like a respectable character no. uh, who has much in the way of compassion or nice. There's like one scene where Gwyneth Paltrow tries to say like, oh, I wish people could see the tender Dickie that I see at the side of the pillow, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, he's very careless with the the way he, he uses people. But he's also megawatt charming. <laughs> And that's the thing. I think it's attractive. An, uh, a testament to the integrity of the the Academy that they didn't just hand Jude Law the award. Because God damn yeah. it, it, is it fair in life for someone to be this charismatic and good looking and just magnetic? Yeah, and it's, it's fucking like, wrong. Uh, it shouldn't happen. Uh, I read this long think piece on the Ringer where they're talking about there's a particular type of like this basic unfairness when someone like this walks up and. The sun only improves their complexion. They come out of salt water and their hair is just like just so right. and wavy and blonde highlight kissed by the sun. Uh, like in him and Gwyneth Paltrow kind of even though she's got a lot fair complexion, they both have this kind of like 
oh, I am a platinum blonde with pale skin, but now I look like I'm a sun-kissed orange. And it it, it is. Yeah, it's super. And, and also, he's instantly believable as anyone's love interest. Man, woman, sure. there between, like, if Jude Law comes up to you and, you, and, and at a bar and wiggles his eyebrows, <laughs> you're at least intrigued sure right yeah. uh, i mean you, you he, take the drink he's offering definitely yeah yeah i'm not saying he's, <laughs> he's able to seal the deal no one's that good looking but sure. like he's, he's you, you you kind of like you give it a moment's thought mm-hmm. um and i think he's just really good at being this like lazy carefree american living in post-war uh italy and you know kind of like Uh, that's the other kind of like interesting thing about him is that uh, he's like a man with no country, but he like uh, the the, the claims the best parts of everything for himself. Like he takes jazz out of America. He takes kind of like the Mediterranean culture and cuisine and the fashion and, and he's all somewhat master of it. Like there's, he's got this like little hole in the wall jazz club that he's essentially completely taken over. Mm hmm. Uh, it's just a really, it's a really good and compelling performance. And if he didn't absolutely crush Dicky, thus none of this the the movie would work. Sure, I agree. Uh, um, how'd you feel about Matt Damon's performance in this? I, th- I I think Matt Damon's good, and especially was good back in the day because you know he's he he's got this like just very boyish good looks and kind of all American charm in his own way. Um, that's a little bit more heartland where Jude Laws mm-hmm. is a little bit more international urbane. Yeah. Um, but he's just very awkward in, in mm-hmm. this, in this film and aware of the awkwardness. Um, and it, t- and there's a lot of like little things he does. Like, um, he's a little too quick to smile. Sometimes mm-hmm. he's a little too late to smile on others. <laughs> he's a uh, little too long in a smile sometimes. He's it dwells a little bit like the, the, yeah. his gaze lingers too long in an inappropriate locations. Um, also, like it takes him a little bit longer to respond sometimes because you can kind of see him, especially in the, the tail end of this film, like rapidly trying to process the angles yeah. like, oh, God, who? And, and sometimes it's like the decision, like, well, who can I kill? Who can I get away with killing? <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, this woman is a textile heiress. Probably not. Ah, oh, God, the gay lover that I actually love. Ah, you know, there's there's something really unsettling about that. And the mm-hmm. fact that he's aware of it's being unsettling at all times is also like super uh, un- un- unsettling as well. Um, yeah. My one critique. I think the talent of Miss Ripley is supposed to be like this master of impression. And it, like has this ability to like use accent and voice work and all that kind of stuff. Matt Damon is not great. Like every single time he does like mm-hmm. what's supposed to be a dead on pitch perfect impression of somebody. I'm thinking, nope, that's yeah. all I can hear is his <laughs> Matt Damon from <laughs> from Team America. What do you think of him? Yeah, I, I liked him. I agree with your assessment of his uh, impressions. They're they're not amazing, but I did like his performance. I thought, you know, all the things we mentioned about the 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 creepy smile, the processing of of all the angles, um, all that stuff added up to a performance that I really believed. Uh, and really, that's all you're going for as an actor, right? Like you're he's not supposed to be a super charming character. He's supposed to be that guy who's a little off putting, but manages to cover it up well enough that he gets by in any situation. And I think. Matt Damon uh, uh, apparently like you know prepped for this role in surprising ways I guess he lost like 30 pounds 
Yeah. Uh, and Jude Law unbelievably gained about the same amount of weight. Yeah, it's it's crazy to me because I, I guess I didn't see that as necessary. Um, but maybe subconsciously it was adding something to the off-putting nature of his character. I don't know. Yeah, I also guess in the early scenes, he wore full body makeup to make him look like unnaturally pale and, and pallid, too, because, oh, you know, really? he's yeah, you see Matt Damon. He's, he seems like he tans pretty well, just as well as Jude Law. But he's supposed to look like that uh, pasty white, uh, you know, not, that hasn't had a lot of uh, time to lay at the beach. And they did a lot of that stuff, like the physicality. Yeah, Matt was it seems like really hot for this role. Mm-hmm. Um, Leonardo DiCaprio was the one that they wanted to get for it and he passed on it so Matt Damon said yes sure. and uh, there you go um, I was surprised because like long term fans of Bald Move will know that I kind of have a personal antagonist relationship with one Gwyneth Paltrow uh, she is the acting equivalent of nails on a chalkboard for me I, um, but I actually there's there's two roles that I know off the top of my head that I like her in, and one is the first Iron Man movie as Pepper Potts, and the second one is this because like she blends in his role that I don't even see, fucking goop vag- vagina candle uh, Paltrow here. I just see uh-huh. this poor Marge woman who is just as helpless before the charms of Dickie Greenleaf as uh, as anyone in a movie. Yeah, and she sympathizes with the way Tom is kind of cast aside in the part of the movie. And she's one of the only ones that sees through to Tom's truly rotten core, maybe because she gave him so much. She took him seriously as a person. Mm -hmm. Um, And she does a lot of like really interesting work as being like very frightened in that one scene where he's trying to minister with the razor and then, you know, being this tragic a vindictive character who's ultimately right, but treated as this like hysterical woman. Um, I really liked Gwyneth Paltrow in this movie. What the fuck? I was not as impressed with Gwyneth Paltrow in this movie. I was more impressed right. with Kate Blanchett, actually. Um, well, it, it's yeah. a, it's certainly a more nuanced performance uh, from Kate Blanchett, I think. But uh, yeah, they're there in those moments that you're talking about where she's, you know, being menaced. Uh, I, I was seeing the performance a little too much, mm. um, not feeling like this was enough of a character and maybe it's the movie's fault. Maybe it's, they don't make her into as much of a character, um, as, as many of the other characters in this film. But I, yeah, I found myself like really looking more toward, uh, Kate Blanchett as like the, the dominant lead female in this movie. Wild because she is, uh, she's almost always treated as a complication. Uh huh. You know, like any time that uh, Tom's doing or Tom as Dickie's doing pretty well, here comes uh, Kate Blanchett to be like, yeah, Dickie. And it's instantly everything that's already a complicated situation is now three times more complicated because she's yet another ball to, to, to juggle. But I mean, I think fuck, it was I just a performance. Blanchett. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was just a performance that I liked better. She's really good at the high society type roles, too, because she mm-hmm. was pretty outstanding and like the aviator and a very similar. Yeah. Uh, kind of role. Um, I don't know. She's got that kind of effortless, like elegance and charm. And this, um, I, I talked about how there's a lot of like catch, like this is like a dark version of catch me if you can, which interestingly enough, Leonardo DiCaprio actually, uh, <laughs> uh-huh. uh headed up that, that, that film. Um, where, I mean, like, what's the difference between Catch Me If You Can and Tom Ripley? The fact that uh, the guy who the, was a Frank Mangella or whatever, he didn't, he stopped short of killing people. Because it seems like they oh, were motivated uh, by, know, yeah. ex- 
Yeah, Abigail. Yeah, it seems like they were um, like motivated by entirely the same forces. It's just yeah. Frank had some kind of core of goodness inside him where Tom was just empty and hollow inside. Yeah. Hmm. Core of goodness. I, I, I man, there's a whole spectrum there. Uh, goodness mm. is, I don't know that that's a thing I would necessarily label Frank Avondale with, but yeah, badness is certainly a thing I would label Mr. Ripley with. So maybe like, yeah, Abagnale is not nearly as bad of of a person as Ripley. Yeah, uh, and so yeah, he it's, walks it's that scoundrel line. He he walks he that, that that very thin scoundrel line. Whereas Tom just um, at the I, I don't I don't know how you break down this act. So I guess I feel like that when Philip Seymour Hoffman's Freddy shows up, that's the end of Act One, which is essentially the rise of Tom. And then his murder of Dicky ends kind of like the 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 the, the second act. Um, yeah, which was kind of surprising to me because I I was watching this movie and I saw the boat scene and I'm like, okay, he's mm-hmm. dead. He's going to you know subsume his life into his own and some you know the the movie will end here and we'll be left to either wonder you know does he get caught or does he succeed in whatever he's whatever integration he's trying to do here. And then there's another hour of the movie. Like, I I guess I wasn't expecting. I, I thought that was the third act. Yeah, it's a heist film, and what he's doing is stealing another man's life, or at least attempting yeah. to. And it just keeps um, unfolding. Like that's the thing about this movie. Oh, yeah. It every time I think, okay, either the jig is up and he's caught, or the movie is coming to its conclusion. There's mm-hmm. another chapter unfolding, and it's this movie is really brilliant in that it keeps you just one step behind it the entire time, and you're you're always so caught up in the moment and how he's going to get out of this situation that you don't see the things he's doing to set up the next deception, and I think that's mm. maybe the biggest strength of this entire film as a yeah, thriller. Sometimes, sometimes he doesn't even see right, like uh, yeah, he, he's, he's an opportunist to improvise. For sure. Yeah. And like sometimes like he's always reaching for a higher branch and sometimes he doesn't have his arm quite or, you know, something um, because like he's always trying to maximize his 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 success, but also minimize his danger. And sometimes those like goals come into conflict. Yeah. You know, where like. uh, At the end of the film. I don't know if we're ready to talk about this or not, but like he was ready to get away with literal murder. Um, and how like how the, the, the last 45 minutes where he's like dodging the cops, he's dodging private investigators, he's dodging Dickie's friends and acquaintances and trying to have this elaborate like fantasy of him and Dickie still being best friends. And, you know, oh, you just missed him. I mean, it's like some ridiculous Adam West Batman shit, uh-huh. like on some of these scenes, like that engineered meeting between Meredith and Marge at the cafe where yeah. he's watching over it and like split second timing. It literally did feel like. You know, Adam West sending his buttless, his old ass butler as Batman and convincing Commissioner Gordon that, oh, no, we can't possibly be the same person. Right. Um, It's ridiculous, but it's also deadly serious because whenever he runs like he always tries to isolate us. So there's only like one or two people that stand in his way of success and he murders them. But the end He's gotten away with it. He's gotten Dickie framed for his own murder and the murder of the other thing, the other guy he committed. He's inherited this guy's inheritance and fortune. And now he can live free and clear as Tom Ripley for the rest of his life. 
and you're thinking, I don't know. I'm like, well, am I happy for this guy? What's going on? He's got this, this, this sweet boyfriend. And then fucking Kate Blanchett shows up with a dicky and the whole, and there, he's on a boat in the middle of the ocean going to America. And there's only, you can see him try to different possibilities. Like go back to his lover and be like, let's just stay in our stateroom and fuck all voyage long. And that's mm-hmm. not going to work. And then he try, and then he finds out this guy saw him kiss Meredith and yep. It's and it spirals fucking, out of control again. That last scene where he's has his boyfriend talk about like what a good person he is as he eventually starts choking him to death mm-hmm. is as chilling a thing I've ever seen. It, that, that is an astounding ending to this film. Uh, I was thoroughly impressed. I, I just sat there going, holy shit. It, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a tribute to the editor of this film. Just how I felt at the end of this movie. I also think that, you know, uh, this Anthony Mangella guy is no slouch, too, because setting up that shot where, like, you know, Matt Damon is sitting devastated on the edge of a bed and he's on a ship and there's all these mirrors on doors and like cabinets that are like swaying back and forth, revealing different sides and images and facets of him. Mm-hmm. Like that is a hell of a shot to, to composite and put together. And it also reminded me of an early one. There's one in the midpoint where him and Dickie are in a bathroom, I think. And the mirror is reflecting like Jude Law's full face, but we see like Matt Damon in a profile and they're merged right at that central nose line. Yeah. When they're in the train. Oh, that's what it was in a train. And I'm just like, man, what a shot because you can see like the wheel spinning in, in Tom's head about like, I could actually take this guy's identity. And yet this composite image is this weird kind of Picasso, you know, cubist uh-huh. painting of a thing. I, I, and I was like, man, outside of just this outstanding natural beauty that they're able to capture from going up and down the coastline of Italy. Um, some of those shots I thought were really nice grace, grace points for this film. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I see why you love Italy, by the way. <laughs> it's amazing, man. It's amazing. It's it, funny to see all the places that I went on my trips in this movie. <laughs> Cause you spent a lot of time in Venice over the last two years. Uh, in Italy. Yeah. Um, I've been to Rome and and Venice, which are featured pretty prominently in this movie, like St. Mark's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Piazza, uh, Piazza San Marco is like pretty prominently featured. Yeah. Uh, in the film. And yeah, it's, it's always funny to see like, you know, even even smaller ones like uh, Piazza Navona or or any of those ones in Rome are like kind of kind of neat to see. Hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, it's uh, it's, a, it's an entirely different place than where I'm from, obviously. Yeah, um, yeah. But it just seems like it's 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 got like the best parts of like desert, mountain, coast. Uh, it's it's just it's just a beautiful country. And they shot on location in a lot of these places. Um, oh, yeah. So, yeah, all those places you're seeing are really those locations, which some of those shots, how they get them, I'm kind of amazed that they could. Like, they must have had some sort of government sponsorship here where the government was helping them shut down and keep crowds out and stuff like that. Cause those places are remarkably crowded all the time. Well, the other thing is they made it seem like it's this endless Italian summer. Um, And I guess that was actually problematic because the weather, they actually had this very stormy there's in this very stormy season on the coast. And it was, it's supposed to be like the sun drenched, 
landscape and they got like i guess like minutes at a time like they would go and film like one side of a dialogue and then the rain would start and they'd have to come back in wait for it to like it seemed like it was a real nightmare to film because the weather just refused to cooperate Hmm. um but you can never you'd never tell like because the thing does look exactly how they want it to everything is just beautifully lit by golden hour lighting all the time uh And, you know, watching them zip up and down these cobblestone streets on their uh, little scooters is is just a lot of fun. And then, yeah, I, I love the fashion and the, the transportation and the scenery. But, like, I, I keep forgetting when I'm looking at these scenes because I, I was there, you know, the last year uh, that this takes place in the 50s. Like, you got to remember, this is like a right. 1950s era film, uh, a period film. And nothing, like that's the thing about these old cities, nothing has changed there, you know? It's like, okay, we've got maybe a few more pieces of signage up and maybe like the the overhang, like the fabric uh, overhangs or umbrellas that they're mm-hmm. using at the cafe tables are a little different, but for the most part, it looks exactly the same. Yeah. And I think, uh, I mean, why wouldn't it? It's looked like Rome, right. when you want to go back, has looked exactly the same for 2,000 years. Exactly. Uh, it's it's not, not going to change in 50. Which is funny because, like, you think of that, like, Milan and everything being, like, one of the centers of fashion. Um, yeah. But yet there's this timeless quality to the places they live. Maybe that's why they go crazy on the fashion side. There you go. Uh, so we've talked a little bit about uh, Matt Damon's character, uh, Tom Ripley. I I had a lot of trouble pinning that character down in this movie, and I think that's intentional. I think you're supposed to be wondering, because he himself is wondering about his own identity, right? And one of the things, one of the themes that keeps coming up is that he's gay. And I couldn't tell if this was a put-on from Tom Ripley or if this, like, is something he did just to ingratiate himself to people that he thought might uh, be interested in that sort of person, or if he genuinely had those feelings especially as it as it goes down to like peter because i think when you look at dickie and his relationship that was definitely a little like is romantic the right word i don't know sexual certainly romantic i mean just the reaction he had after he killed dickie where he's like cradling him in the bottom of the boat um there was some genuine feeling there but also it's hard to tell because like when it was Cecily and I were watching, I'm like, what do you, do you think that Matt, do you think Matt Damon's character here is gay or is he like asexual or is this part of it? Like his predatory disguise? Is he like a, right. An opera sexual or a sexual tunist, like whatever he needs to be to get to that next branch? Because like, what do we know about Tom? What are Tom's hobbies and passions? Music, I guess, but he doesn't like jazz. He pretends to like jazz. But, but he doesn't he's like- memorizing the, the, the songs in a way that's like, systematic he's not enjoying that he's no, doing uh, it because he thinks it'll get him ahead and so yeah I don't, I don't know what we know about that guy nothing yeah like the, the only thing he likes is success and a lavish lifestyle and art and wearing fancy clothes like these are like uh he what he's what he's really passionate about i guess is consumption you know conspicuous uh, uh consumption and but maybe status but yeah, and that, that's one of the things like I had a question for you is like, uh, is this one of those problematic evil gays type films? Because on the one hand, it's made in 99, which is like at the cusp of where Hollywood stopped. Um, Hollywood always does a bunch of stupid shit. But like, you know, uh, they started being a little bit more, hey, 
maybe there's other ways we can code villainous uh, people other than having them be gay or have a physical disability or, you know, some kind of birth defect. Like maybe there's other ways to code people as evil rather than than that. Um, but I felt like when I, I read a lot of commentary and a lot of it seems like uh, this thing came out and was, it hit Netflix like uh, late last year and a lot of people were watching it. Uh, there's uh, I wasn't aware of it, but there was a lot of big pieces on like Vanity Fair and Ringer and some of these other places uh, where they did uh, a, a, like a 20 years after the 20 year anniversary of, you know, Talented Mr. Ripley. What do we think about it? And a couple of them touched on that question, but ultimately like gave it a pass. And I think that that's the key because it doesn't feel like Tom Ripley is gay as much as it feels like he's just predatory. Yeah. Um, it feels like this and, is a, a mentally deranged person doing yeah. whatever he needs to do uh, yeah. to accomplish his goals. Yeah. And like you, that's uh, like is James Bond gay? Because like canonically, he will make passes at male agents if it gets him an advantage. No, he's an opportunist, takes advantage to to serve his other goals and, and, and motives. So I, I don't know. I, I honestly I will say that the first time I saw that as a devout Christian, a lot of the gay subtext completely missed me. Um, I didn't get the idea that there, huh. the, the, that there was as much of a, a romantic triangle between like Freddie and Dickie and Tom as there was like a competition for attention and money angle. Uh-huh. Um, I thought that like, uh, you know, Dickie more or less rebuffed Tom, which I guess he did. Like, I, I thought that was something that like mm-hmm. Tom did as, as part of his camouflage and just misread the situation. But now I watch it you know, with like fresh modern eyes with the scales pulled off and like, holy moly, there's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, gay sexual tension, you know, bubbling through this film. And, um, and you know, when you mix it up with the identity stuff, um, because the, the, at the core of it, you know, Tom Ripley doesn't know who he is because mm-hmm. he's lost the thread. You know, he's, he's not mentally stable. Uh, I think to begin with and then once he gets into these deceptions so deep he starts confusing himself on who he is and so you know when I'm watching the movie I'm thinking okay does he even understand what uh, other something other than what he just wants out of this situation does he understand who he is uh, in any given moment and there are times when he slips up and he calls himself Dickie when he he shouldn't be in that role he should be in the Tom role yeah. Um and so like the movie confuses it and I think that's you know but one of the things that makes it great because it kept me uneasy the entire time um mm-hmm. not knowing who Tom Ripley is. Um and at the same time I think there's a lot of stuff that Tom Ripley is saying and that other characters are you know saying to him like there several times in the movie there are moments where if there is a real Tom Ripley, it starts to kind of bubble to the surface where he talks about, you know, the fucking terrifying dialogue where he's talking about, uh, we all have things that we lock away in a basement and refuse to ever go in that room. And I'm like, that's fucking dark. That's real dark. But like, in some ways I, I identify with this as somebody who grew up in a cult, never Mm -hmm. believed in the cult, but had to pretend for yeah. their entire childhood that this was something they were into at least enough to get by enough mm-hmm. to not get hassled it's like mm-hmm. that could probably drive you insane if you did it long enough yeah no um it I, I think you're exactly right and there's a lot of like this movie begins with uh some crib dialogue at the end of the movie where like tom's lamenting it's like you know i wish i could just start erasing everything 
and like erase myself and it's like also um, when he writes the suicide note for Dickie and he blots out his own face in the passport uh, well, I guess Dickie's face in the passport, but like you get the idea when he's when you, he's reading this suicide uh, note that it's essentially Tom talking about himself. Yeah. And then when when Dickie's dad shows him the passport where he's like completely erased himself and said, like, who does this? And you realize it's Tom like Tom yeah. has erased himself to the point of like what is there of his original personality left. He's so compartmentalized, so locked down. Um, like I don't like if you I wonder if you asked Tom how many people he murdered in this film, if he would even be able to give an accurate count. Because I bet he's got a I bet he's got a rationalization and like the ability to to, to, to analyze the sequence of like, you know, like was I Tom or Dickie? When yeah. I killed Freddy. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it is, you know, that Frank Abernale and, and type of thing. And did Tom or Dickie murder Peter? Uh-huh. Like, Dickie murdered Peter, not Tom. Tom was in love with Peter. <laughs> it's it's so, it's just, it's so it's weird crazy, and man. fucked up to where he can, like, look. And, and it's always fun when, like, um... There's like three points in a film. I think Dickie does it once. Um, uh, uh, Mar- or Marge does it to him once. And then Dickie's dad does it to it once where they essentially recount something that Tom did and says, you know, what kind of person would do that? Or like, what would drive a person to do that? And like, they always pan to Tom's face and he's just got this kind of like plastic smile. Yeah. It's really, really fucking creepy. It is. Uh, and I don't usually think of creepy when I think of Matt Damon. So sure. pretty good. Uh, I mentioned in the pre-podcast, I thought that there was a little bit of like um, parasites and uh-huh. there's a little commentary like uh, the fact that uh, the, these wealthy people are very good at sniffing out people that don't belong. There's e- easily superficially easy to fool. But then like you require a lot of depth into your deception, like you can be betrayed by how you look, uh, how you smell. Um, what accent you have, if you have calluses on your hands, uh, what type of music you enjoy, um, like the fact that you pick up after yourself. Mm-hmm. Like, I thought that was great how Dickie, it just really bothered him that like Tom picks up after himself and others where clearly a guy who's never had to, you know, like when, when he fucks up an apartment, he either hires a cleaning lady or just sails up the coast and gets another one. Yeah. Uh, it's stuff like that I thought was really interesting. Like, like Freddie coming over and like dismissing all the hard work Tom has done in this apartment as bougie. Mm-hmm. And you wonder like, <laughs> did, did Tom kill uh, Freddie because he was a danger, a clear and present danger to him or because he insulted his bourgeoisie middle-class taste? A little both maybe. I think I, th- I, I, I think so. Oh. And also there's, there's also the, the, uh, the idea that like, um, you know, Dickie and uh, Marge are not contributing anything to society. They're just taking things. Um, they themselves are parasites on their wealthy, you know, shipping magnate uh, mothers and fathers and textile uh, bear, you know, all these robber, robber barons and big, important people. Um, but and you're kind of like, I guess, in the beginning, rooting for Tom to get away with this. But then mm-hmm. as the bodies start stacking up and. And I like I stayed sympathetic to the family, to the underclass family in Parasite up to the very end of the movie. But clearly halfway through, I, you know, start feeling like, okay, Tom, you've gone you've gone too fucking far. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if that's just because Parasite stops essentially where this first act of the movie begins. 
you know they've they've had a body count huh. or two but like there's this there's there's a lot more that you, that he's they kind of stop it there they don't can chronicle the family's ever increasing descent into depravity to keep up the subterfuge where like the entire half of talented mr ripley is just that yeah no yeah you're right um and you know that kind of speaks to how i thought the movie was basically over and then it has another hour and even at the end of the movie it's not over you know he's killed peter but what's he going to do with the body is he going to get away with it can he plus he's now dicky again and dicky's uh-huh. dead uh how is he going to like i almost want to read the books to see like what happens when he returns to america with meredith yeah and he's supposed to be dicky greenleaf but that guy's dead in in uh, italy yeah i mean meredith is a loose end i i assume she's got to go overboard at some point <laughs> But then but it's like, know. why not just why not just do that instead of killing your 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 boyfriend? I don't know, because the, yeah. you know, the end of the movie is really bleak because, yeah, what is his he's almost rooting for it to sink like the fucking Titanic. Like that would be like his the, the best thing that could happen, because then, you know, who knows what could happen in all that chaos. But there's this madcap energy that like even though like Tom Ripley's unambiguously evil and a, and a villain, like I found myself. I don't know if rooting for it is the right way, but just kind of like breathlessly, you know, like how like, I guess kind of like late stage Walter White, like you're a bastard, but damn, I'm kind of invested in seeing how you get out of this one. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the, the the mad risks he takes, like there's a couple points where like I was like biting my fingernails, just him smelling Jude Law on a train. <sighs> Uh, or yeah, he he thinks Jude law is going to be stuck in Rome because he missed the last train, forgetting the fact that these are rich people with cars and he's doing this, putting on the Ritz routine in Dickie's underwear and that, Oh God, the full body cringe of when Jude law walks in and just judges the shit out of all of this Uh and how the complications just keep in adding up and up like that fucking opera scene was amazing. Mm. Uh, the roller coaster of emotions when he finds out he's going to be meeting Dickie's father, and then the slow realization that, like, oh shit, I'm under zero suspicion. Uh-huh. Like, I thought I was really fighting for my life, but now, like, and this American investigator comes over and he starts the conversation with, like, in America, we're taught to not trust a fact until it's established as a fact. I'm like, well, brother, yeah. you need to come talk to us in 2020. Mm-hmm. But you, and you think that like, oh, this is it for him. But it turns out nah, because they've got their preconceptions and what they want to believe and what they want to, to happen to keep things quiet for the family. It's just a fucking really tightly well-engineered plot that had me, yep. you know, on edge for the last entire hour of the film. Yeah, uh, it's an exceptionally crafted story. I yeah. think. And then, like I said, the ending is just gutting. Like it yep. just left me completely empty feeling um, and just like, God, and I do all this several shit of those moments. Like that boat scene was was gutting. Like the boat scene is fucking intense. And yeah, and I get, I knew what was coming, and it didn't seem to stifle that intensity at all. Yeah, because you got this. Um, because you know Dickie's a a bit of a dick, and you get this idea that he can't just break up with people. He's the type that like has to use and abuse till someone else like has enough and then taps out. And like yeah. you can see him like he's like, hey, let's take this boat ride, let's find a new apartment. But then he starts fucking and making like Tom feel very uncomfortable and unsafe. And then when he gets out and he's all alone, he just starts unloading onto Tom, and, and all this pent up frustration and creepiness just comes out. And then yeah, like Jesus, the 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 beating and the death of the oar, uh, it's wild, wild stuff. 
Yeah. Philip Seymour Hoffer getting beat to death by some kind of Roman bust. Uh, yeah, also. Okay. Okay. I let's talk about that bust because I okay am under the distinct impression that that is Jude Law with a beard. No. Am I wrong? Going, I mean, I don't know. I just assumed it was like Homer or some shit like that. Like you know, like what uh, a well, bourgeois, <laughs> what, what, what some kind of lower middle class person would think a. You know, it's like Donald yeah. Trump is essentially it's, it's Donald Trump uh, design, like a, a right. poor man's idea of how a rich person would decorate their their Italian flag. Yeah, it's gaudy. It's it's uh, it's obscene. Neoclassical, but no, but, but from all different periods and taste and design. Yeah. Yeah. Vulgar. Vulgar. Uh, it, but <laughs> OK, maybe it's not Jude Law, but I like what they were doing with the statue stuff, because uh, at the beginning of the movie, they show a headless statue. Um Oh. He so he sort of walks away from a headless statue, and I don't remember if he's lined up with it when where he turns and the camera moves. They kind of put his head on that, but like mm-hmm. you know, as much as this movie has, uh, or that character has a thing, his thing is uh, this switching of identities and swapping the heads on a statue without one might be seen as uh, thematically appropriate. Do you have any conspiracy theories about? Dickie's or Tom's involvement with the death of that young Italian woman. Uh, I Be- assumed it was Tom. I did too, but I don't think there's anything in the movie to suggest that other than like yeah. when he says I would do anything like post, like it's almost like he's eager to take the credit for it. Like I'd do anything for you, Tom. You're like a brother. I'll take the blame. Um, yeah, but I, like, I feel like I, this I, is I, the warm up. This, this is like, this is them saying, uh, something is really wrong in this relationship and mm-hmm. we don't know yet that Tom is a killer. We haven't seen him kill anybody, but I think it's one of those things in a retrospect, you look at it and say, Oh, that was probably Tom. But also the other way, cause I, I, I kind of wanted to watch this again to see if there is any, cause like, the timeline is such that I don't know how he would have done it, but yeah. there's also the idea that like maybe Dicky did it because they introduced the idea that he almost beat someone to death in a fit of peak in Princeton. And he's had these other violent outbursts over his life. And the, you know, when he found out that she died, like he fucking goes a little sunny, uh, Corleone and starts trashing the place because he's so fucking pissed off and like, you know, can't control his emotions. And there's this idea that like, maybe Dickie did it and then because that seems like that's how really that's the core of what soured their relationship is that Dickie had this like you know traumatic thing happened with this Italian woman and it kind of blew up and uh, Tom said that like hey if you're going to get in trouble like why did Tom say that like I feel like another interpretation is Tom thought that Dickie did it because it's consistent with how he would do it or like his understanding of Dickie and he was offering to take the rap and be his brother and lover and all this stuff. And that when Dickie spurned him shortly after, that's what gave him the idea to, to do the murder. You but could, I don't know you could if that be tracks right. through. Uh, you could be right. I, I think like there, there's a bit of like a Tom esque plot in that section for Dickie because he's caught up in, you know, these multiple relationships with multiple women and, if if you believe him about her being pregnant, that's certainly a complication in in what is already a pretty complicated emotional uh, patchwork here. Mm-hmm. And and, you know, along with the, the history of violence, you could start to, to wonder about him. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know. It seems like it would reward multiple watches. There's also, I guess, um, 
there, there's a previous version of this that was filmed earlier because um, this you know book series is kind of successful and I kind of want to go back and see that because I guess a lot of people say that that's the canonical Tom Ripley hmm. like the, the the actor that they get to play him is just like utterly convincing and, and some of the ways that we I thought I thought Matt Damon did a great job and he brought his own kind of unique spin to the thing but like I do think there was some seams to the performance um, I like the literal scenes that they had in the intro where they were like showing him in sp- split relief lighting and like high, uh, you know, kind of getting the idea early in the film that this is a fractured yeah. kind of jigsaw piece of a person. Uh, he's like a, a beam of light that's been split into its composite composite colors or something. Uh-huh. Yeah. A film I like Gwyneth Paltrow in what a, <laughs> what a rare and beautiful <laughs> achievement. All right, that'll do it for the talented Mr. Ripley. Uh, we'll be back next week. Jim and I are going to see Alfonso Cuaron's Children of Men, something I actually have never gotten around to seeing in the last 15 years, and you say you have seen? Yeah, I've seen it once. It's a dystopian kind of sci-fi thriller. Uh, I, have no, I, I have no idea what the plot is about at all. Uh, so I'm going in completely blind and looking forward to that. If you want to watch it with us, uh, it's available to rent or buy in a lot of locations, but it's also streaming for free. Uh, if you have a star subscription or a direct TV subscription, uh, or any of the add on, like, you know, stars on Hulu stars on Amazon, uh, you can watch it for free, but yeah, if you, uh, if you're excited about that, check us out next week. We'll be, uh, talking about children of men until then I'm Aaron. I'm Jim. See ya.